Hey everybody, this is John Fusco, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of The First Short. Um, this is kind of nerve-wracking. It's a little bit weird being here completely alone in the booth right now. I'll be joined by a guest later. But basically, this series is going to be a little bit different than anything else we've ever done. It's going to be a lot of me talking. So hopefully you can bear through that. When Ryan did the first feature back in the spring, at least he'd use one of us, either Liz or Eric or I, to sort of feed him these questions and uh, give him some guidance as to how the conversation would go. I'm pretty much leaving that up to myself and my own intuition at this point. Um, Anyways, that's just a full disclaimer, but I'm really excited about it because I think it's going to be very informative. Um, I'm recording this uh, three days after I submitted my short film, The Guy, to Sundance Film Festival and regardless of you know whether it does well or whether it actually gets into any festivals i am i can just feel really good knowing that i tried um which i think is the hardest part of making a short is really just doing it like getting past the hurdle of saying of people telling you that you can't do it and you telling yourself that you can't do it and just like really putting the pedal to the metal and getting things going. And once things start getting going, they keep going further. There's a snowball effect. But you just really have to be really on top of yourself. So the mission of the podcast is uh, really just after the success of Ryan's series about his first feature, I thought, hey, maybe some of you out there aren't ready to shoot your first feature. Um, you know, maybe there's some people who haven't shot anything uh, and want to shoot something. So you're interested in starting somewhere but you don't really know how to start or where to start. And that's what this podcast is about, because a short film is really something else entirely. It's not a feature film. It's something that's a lot scarier in a lot of ways. So as I said last week, I finished this project. I submitted my first submission. And the project took 1,641 days to complete. That's four and a half years of my life. Um, And the first 1,200 or so of those days were filled by thoughts of me telling myself I couldn't pull it off because I didn't know anybody who could help me produce a movie, because it would cost too much, because the script was just too weird. And short is a tricky thing because you don't really know how much time or money to invest in such a personal thing that nobody may even end up seeing. So a lot of people don't even try. The point of this podcast is to get you to stop worrying and just try. I made a lot of mistakes, but I learned more in this period about film than I think I ever would have learned going to film school, and in terms of gathering information, I've been placed in this incredibly lucky position of being able to run the podcast for No Film School. I'm not saying this to get you guys to listen to the hundreds of interviews we've conducted over the past two and a half years since the show began, but I'm saying this as someone who was once a clueless filmmaker himself who learned how to make a film by listening to other filmmakers talk about their experience. So now, I hope that by the end of these three episodes... Uh, simply covering pre-production, production, production, and post-production, that you'll be able to do the same. 
So to start off, let's talk about how you know if you should make your short film. Ryan had a similar sort of episode where he talked about how you know which idea to pursue or which ideas to pursue in making a feature. Um, I think that with a short film, there are a few schools of thought here. Uh, And since I followed one path, the 1641-day path, and we'll be mostly talking about my own experience creating a short that took a lot of resources to make, I really felt the need to mention this before getting into my own experience. And it's just that if you have an idea for a short, there is no reason you shouldn't be able to make it. If you craft the idea to be shot for less than $5, it can be done. I interviewed uh, a director named Tony Grayson who made a short for $4.50 a couple weeks ago, and he got into South by Southwest with it. And like, if my film gets into South by Southwest with the type of budget and resources that we had, I would be like very uh, surprised and excited. I think that you can make as good a short for $5 if you're uh, thinking and if your planning is good enough uh, than you can for, say, a short that costs like more than $15,000 to shoot. The point is there are ways to make a short on a minuscule budget, but they need to be addressed during the writing of the script or the inception of the idea. If you want to make something cheap, write a narrative in one location that you can easily access. Even better if there are no exteriors, and if you have minimal characters and just maybe some actors that are your friends. If you want to make something even cheaper, make a documentary where you don't even have to really worry about a lot of the aspects of a narrative in terms of production. I thought I had these things in mind when I made my short, uh, but I did not. I wrote a 25-page long script with three locations, uh, which I thought was, oh, okay, three locations isn't bad. That's a lot of locations. Uh, If you want to make an easy short, stick to one. It also had heavy production design, a kid, which, which ended up being great, but, you know, avoid children, multiple exteriors, uh, which are difficult, of course, because you have to be thinking about, like, the light and um, in terms of, like, scheduling your days. You have to be very conscious of how much time you're spending on those exteriors. If you write a lot of interiors, you can maybe have an easier time uh, with the schedule and sort of replicating the light um, that you would have outside at a normal hour. And, of course, it had a boat fight. Uh, So the boat... (laughs) So don't write a script uh, that involves combat on water uh, for your first short. That's a pretty big tip right there. I don't know why I thought this would be easy to shoot at the time, but that's how I wrote it. And then I fell in love with it, and I had to do it. Um, I had the idea for three years. I was just sitting on it, and it never lost any of its uh, urgency in terms of a story that I felt like needed to be told. So let's also address script length here, because... Um, the 25-page long script that I first wrote after three or four years of doctoring became a 13-page script. And I think that's really important because the sweet spot for a short should be 15 minutes or less. And I know that programmers say that they've programmed 20-minute shorts, and there have been a handful of those that I've seen at festivals, but it's few and far between. And more importantly, guess what? The audience, myself included, will inevitably get restless watching a longer short within the context of five or six other shorts in a screening block. And their mind will start wondering. They'll start thinking about, you know, what's coming next. They'll get bored. 
The thing to keep in mind with a short film is because of its quote-unquote short distinction, you really have to try and keep their attention wrapped for its entire runtime. That's especially true when you consider the fact that programmers for major festivals like Sundance or South by Southwest have to sit through 7,000 films before making a choice. If you lose their attention, you lose. You're toast. So, if you have an idea for a short, try and get that idea down to 15 minutes. Or don't. Ultimately, it's your vision, but it doesn't hurt to take into consideration how you want that film to be received, or exhibited, or what your plans are for it when it's actually done. It's a lot of planning. (laughs) That's the secret to a good short, is a lot of planning. Alright, so now let's get into my own experience. I first came up with the idea with a group of friends um, literally the day after I graduated from college. Uh... We came up with this anthology idea about a person who wakes up, goes into a boat, uh, something happens in that boat where he is transformed into another person, and for whatever reason, he also grows a beard. I might play a section of that uh, conversation because I actually recorded, we, we got so excited about the idea that we actually recorded the entire discussion. Um, and it's a little sloppy, so I thought that I'd share some because it's kind of funny. Yeah, let's talk about casting. Okay. <laughs> is it gonna be the same person for all of us? I think it, I think it, everyone should have the same guy. Yeah. 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 I think that would be. If it was different guys, then it would feel more like four short films. Yeah. Well, that's that might be cool. We would have to be really specific with like the kind establishing of shot. You know, like to to link I'm, them up. I mean, maybe we can we can share location. Yeah, we we should totally share. We should location. also repeat. Yeah, should yeah. Also I mean, they should shot. all be the same. Like, be a lot of common yeah. Factors. yeah, they should all be the same setting, for sure. So, look at that. So you don't wanna, you don't wanna use the same guy. For each one of us. For all of them. Yeah. Use the same I mean, actor. use the same actor for both characters. I. It might be cool. Yes. No, and for all of our, like the same actor for all of our. Thing. Well, it's okay. We should look at it as if yeah. That's the are question. we are we yeah, developing I mean. are we developing this for a future? No, I don't know. I that that's a question cool. I have. For I think for a feature that would work, but for like maybe some like a, a launching off point, we might as well just do it yeah. for yeah. ourselves. I think like, I I think I know mine too. I think I got mine. But I, I think, think I also this. think it would be cool to use the same actor. I I would like to have the same actor. I think that'd be cool. All of us. Yeah. Okay. We have to choose someone we all like. <laughs> we'll find someone. And someone who's down for that kind of commitment, too. Oh, my God. Hey, um... <laughs> I heard you clear your throat earlier, and I was like, where did that come from? <laughs> Can I have a bite of that soup? Andy, what are you doing out there? That's not safe. Corn chowder. It's not fair. But yeah, corn. Fine, fine corn chowder. I really like this idea, guys. Is it still recording? Yeah. Wait. Okay. It should should still be recording. So two years after this conversation, I decided to write it. Uh, The first two years out of college were really tough um, because I went to school for acting, and that doesn't really give you a skill set (laughs) to be perfectly honest um i was getting frustrated with being a busboy for two years um and going out for projects that i didn't 
that didn't resonate with me, and I wanted a more consistent lifestyle. So I decided to switch, and I started interning at, you know, wherever I could, essentially. And I won't get too far into my own professional life, but it was just like one long climb to be able to get to the point where I could eventually start making my own content that did resonate with me. So it was at this sort of time in my life where I was transitioning out of being a busboy into having a more regular job, or rather three internships and a restaurant job that would eventually lead to a job. I wrote the first draft in two weeks. Um, It was really easy. When you've been sitting on an idea for this long um, and gathering influences, and, you know, for me, that meant, like, reading a lot of science fiction and reading a lot of uh, Eastern philosophy, actually, because I was going through, you know, my post-grad phase, and watching a lot of Twin Peaks, finding these references, these visual and literary references to throw into my work as a sort of uh, way to bring the story together. So about a year after I wrote it, I started sending it around to people that I knew that were more in the film industry, which which weren't a lot of people. <laughs> I didn't know a lot of people in the film industry. Even having gone to a school that has a film school, um, I felt like those kids were very hard to, uh, it was hard to get into that world, Um, which I guess is a benefit of going to film school is the connections that you make are tight. (laughs) So I took some meeting with some DPs, uh, some producers or people who called themselves producers. And uh, I had a flame going for about four months and then it went out uh, largely because I didn't have the right people on my side. Um, I think I was, I was looking too far into it. Um, I really wanted to do this right, and I thought that I needed to have people of a certain pedigree uh, to, like, help me and, like, teach me and tell me how to do this stuff. So I gave up for another two years, and I decided to continue focusing on getting a job that wasn't a restaurant job. Eventually, I landed at IndieWire, and I was laid off (laughs) later, and picked up by no film school. Um, after my second year at Sundance, which was a little over a year on the job, I decided that I could make a short, that I'd seen enough of other people's shorts to recognize what a good short was and that my short may be good. So I ramped up my efforts, and I knew sort of the core crew that I would need to make a film at this point, uh, having heard from so many other filmmakers who their most indispensable crew members were. So I think that that necessary crew for a short film, the key first three people you'll need on your team before you can really start plant, like moving things are a DP, a production designer, and at least one producer that's on your side. And that producer is the hardest thing to find unless you know a secret. And that secret is that a producer can be pretty much anyone who's really good at <laughs> being organized and is is committed to your project. So it's hard to find that because you have to find someone that cares enough about this project and its burgeoning stages without anything really to show them or any money, which is a big deal. And I had trouble. I started meeting with friends of friends who I thought maybe uh, could be producers But a lot of these people that were actually in the industry said that I couldn't make this film 
with the script that I'd written for anything less than $35,000, basically. Many of them said that their best piece of advice was to shelve it and do something cheaper and easier. But I'd been sitting on this thing for three years now, and I couldn't be persuaded. All of them refused to join the project. Eventually, I traveled to L.A., and I met with a former classmate who ended up wanting to be an executive producer, um, which was a break that I needed. Uh, This was a little bit of money that ended up being enough to show to a crew uh, or prospective crew members that I meant business and that I would find a way to make the rest whatever it would end up costing later. More than that, it was just really nice to have someone finally on my side um, and basically saying, you should make this thing after having been told that it was not possible to make. So with that money, I was able to hire my first producer. Things went wrong with her, but um, you know she gave me a few simple things that were indispensable that I had no idea I needed. I can't get too into detail because apparently she revoked access to these files that she gave me, but essentially she gave me a target budget um, with a breakdown and a full list of crew members that I'd need. And so I now had an even more strong idea of who it was that I'd need on my team uh, to get the ball rolling and um, how important, I guess, this production designer and this DP would be because they would have to be taking on multiple roles. Um, my art designer or my production designer would also have to be my art director, my set dresser, my costume person, my hair and makeup person, because that's how we're going to make up budget, essentially. This producer, who I will not name, um, ended up being pretty helpful for the first couple weeks. She uh, kind of just gave me some guidance and uh, recommended some crew members that I could reach out to because again I had no idea I had no idea who was going to shoot this thing I had no idea who was going to be a production designer I had no idea who was going to be my AD I didn't know anyone on the technical side of the film industry that could help me with this project I knew actors which was helpful but I you know a lot of the meetings that I took were just because people told me you should meet this person and I took everyone I could get and thankfully, um, it was received well by like the people that I was talking to. So what do you need to attract crew members uh, to your project at such an early stage? You need a solid script, a well-designed lookbook, and sorry to say it, but you need a little bit of cash. You need at least the ambition to say that you'll have the cash Because at this point, we were four or five years out of college. No one wants to work for free anymore, especially for someone that they've never met. So you need to be able to promise them that you're going to be able to give them something. But I think that throughout this whole pre-production, I found that the lookbook was the most important tool I had at my disposal. A strong script is one thing, but the ability to effectively and easily lay out your vision so that others can see it and immediately recognize what they do to help is crucial. Your lookbook is essentially your pitch to crew members. I mean, maybe further down the line, you'll be making lookbooks to uh, appeal to investors or, you know, if you're trying to sell a project. But for someone who's trying to make a short film that has never made anything before, you need to show prospective crew members that you at least have a vision and You need to talk about what it is that they're going to do in your interview 
that is going to help you achieve that vision. Because a movie is not about one person making a thing. A movie is about a lot of people making a thing together. It's about everyone using their own area of expertise in a way to contribute to the whole, if that makes sense. So here's what I think you need for a lookbook. I think, first of all, it needs to be aesthetically pleasing. I think, like, you can't just have a bunch of pictures on a page with, like, some headings. I think it needs to actually be cohesive and uh, give a vibe for what your the tone of your movie is supposed to be. It's all about communicating the tone. So the first page should be a summary um, about what happens in your film. The next section should be headed look and feel, which should explain the look and feel of the project. And this should be like one to two paragraphs long, and it should be sort of a mission statement. It's essentially your page to clue in potential DPs, gaffers, grips, and other members of the camera department as to how you want your film's look to be. You can describe the lighting, give references to other films, and touch on the tone of the film. So for example, the first paragraph of my look and feel section was this, quote, Tony's world draws largely from David Lynch's Twin Peaks before all surreal hell breaks loose. He lives in a small, normal-looking town, but underneath the surface, there may be something boiling underneath. We're going to use a lot of natural light with a focus on soft lighting. In a setting that is almost perpetually foggy, that means very little light will be entering the picture at all. The town is ethereal, isolated, and weird. The fuel of this first world should be somewhere between an 80s Carpenter Cronenberg slasher flick and a 50s sitcom like Leave it to Beaver. That paints a pretty like solid picture uh, in someone's head. And whether or not like we actually had any foggy days on location was totally irrelevant because we could make it feel like it was a foggy day. Hence, the look and the feel. So the second page should have pictures that reference what you're going for, whether this is other movies, TV shows, or even just regular photos you can find on the internet. Pictures that communicate the look and feel. The next section should be labeled visual approach. And this is different than look and feel because you should be highlighting your strategy for camera movement, placement, and how that will all affect the tone of your film. Here's a passage from mine, for example. First and foremost, I'm really interested in building atmospheric tension through the entirety of this film. That means lots of foreboding establishing shots and many moments of stillness, all with the intent of letting the audience feel firmly set in our world. These sort of strategies, often employed in horror by John Carpenter and more recently David Robert Mitchell, make the world feel more rich and immersive for the audience. These are the two most crucial sections of your lookbook, in my opinion. The next sections are characters, where you find images of people you'd like to ideally cast in your roles, and settings with images of ideal locations for each scene in your script. If there's anything else that makes your film stand out, then you can add a section for it too. For example, my lookbook had a section dedicated to sets and prop dressing because the production design required two worlds that were the exact opposite, and I needed to explain my vision for that in a way that a prospective production designer could understand. For example, I wrote, Generally, if an object or a location seems serene in the first world, we will replace it with a threatening object in the next, and then I put in pictures of how we do that. If you have a lookbook all set up, it will also help you further down the road with fundraising, uh, and I'll get into that on the next episode. So now, without further ado, I would like to introduce my first guest to the program, and that's my DP, Adam Gundersheimer. Hello. And so, Adam, right off the bat, I'm, I'm glad you were here to sort of hear uh, 
about the lookbook again um, mm-hmm. because because I wanted to ask you what it is about a lookbook or a successful lookbook that would mi- want to make you work on a film. Yeah, I think uh, a lookbook does a lot of different things. Uh, on one hand, it's showing um, stuff specifically about the image, what a director wants the image to look like, but it's also showing just sort of the uh, tone and feel, which actually doesn't always translate um, exactly to the specific image. So, for example, uh, in your lookbook, we were looking at a lot of um, old Carpenter stuff and older movies, which were really good um, and helpful to get uh, some inspiration for the feel you were going for. But I don't think that we were actually looking for a vintage look on the film. We weren't looking. Uh, some of those older films have like very obvious lighting. Um, you can sort of like see the units going through the window. It's an older style of lighting that I don't think we were looking to do literally. Um, so those images had a different purpose in, in showing me what you were going for, which was, which was also helpful. Yeah. I think like, um, it's sort of the building blocks of a conversation, right? So it's like, I set out the first bit of what we could be going for. And then you having had experience making a movie before could like give me some concrete examples of what we could do to sort of enhance that, um, and eventually that and it's it's cool that you bring up this the vintage look because yeah at first that was not really anything that was even on my mind and i didn't really know like that certain types of lenses could enhance that vintage look for example like we were looking at really nice new anamorphic lenses for a while and then like i'd say maybe 4 weeks 5 weeks before mm-hmm. <laughs> production we were we you we watched we watched Halloween together. Yeah. Um and you told me that you had a different idea. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh we ended up shooting with uh some old Lomo anamorphic lenses, which yeah, was a choice that came a little bit later. Uh the lenses were definitely one aspect of a vintage look that we decided we did like. Um the lighting I would say is a little bit more modern, but um the lenses were sort of a way to harken back to that uh, vintage style as well as uh, uh, vintage lenses, especially anamorphic lenses, tend to have some odd characters that uh, we decided matched the tone of the movie, the sort of surrealness of it and the just like offbeat character. Yeah, and we'll get more into sort of the equipment that we decided to use a little bit later on. Um, But I guess before we move away from the lookbook and from, because I've been talking about like, how hard it is to attract people to your project, mm-hmm. especially if you don't have a record of anything to show. Um, so what is it that makes a project attractive to you? Totally. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing uh, that's present in the lookbook and and just a note in general is, is when somebody pays a lot of attention to a lookbook, it just shows me that they're really thinking about the project. And... Uh, that makes a really big difference for me. There's people who come in and want to make a short film and and uh, aren't really considering how much forethought needs to go into it to make it good and to make the process good. Um, if somebody's not doing a lot of pre-production work, if they're not putting together a lookbook, if they're not thinking about their shot list, if they're not thinking about these things, it could be a sign that pre-production in general is going to be a little bit lacking, which always makes the process of making the movie really not enjoyable. Um, so... Yeah, having a developed lookbook both shows that their um, director is putting thought into it 
into pre-production generally, it also just is really helpful to be to be able to have a specific conversation about what they want the look to look like. And so I was talking about how uh, you know how I needed to get this sort of key crew members together before I could really start in pre-production. Like there were these meetings that I had with several DPs before I got to Adam. Um, and for me, from a director's standpoint, I think that like throughout these interviews, what I was looking for in a DP was someone that I knew I could spend. I mean, this is the case with everyone, I guess, on your crew, or at least the key members of your crew, but someone who I could spend a lot of time with. Um, for me, it was someone that I needed to be able to trust that he understood what I was going for because I was so technically stupid <laughs> at that point that like I didn't have the vocabulary or the terminology to really communicate what I wanted. So like, you know, like if you work with someone over and over again, you tend to develop a shorthand with them. If you can sense that shorthand immediately, I think that is a really big it should be a really big factor in your choice. Um, and it's also important that you pick someone who's like level headed <laughs> as Adam is. Um, you don't want to be dealing with uh, someone who you feel like will be uh, competing with you, um, who has a idea for what the film should like that doesn't match yours um, and who will try to take advantage of your little knowledge of the technical uh, factors of making a film. You want to bring someone on who uh, you feel comfortable just like having a beer with or spending six hours in a car on a way to a location with in a strange, strange uh, neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It goes the other way too where um, I definitely only want to work with directors who I vibe with as people if uh, it doesn't seem like I could at least be like, sort of friends with them during the process it's going to be really horrible um but once that's established once it's established that it's somebody that i can get along with and the project is something that i can uh see eye to eye with at, at that point it's just about um finding a way to support the story mm. and using like whatever knowledge that i have to try to um figure out what the director's vision is and support that vision and enhance that vision so then as i was saying i didn't know anyone really in the film industry up until this point like weirdly adam and this is something that i completely forgot but my lead actor actually had just finished working with adam on another short film um called goodbye brooklyn uh which is a great short and hopefully should be online soon michelle uranowitz and daniel jaffe are great people uh funny as hell and mitch or michelle is like unbelievable in my movie i think uh, but she was the one who like reminded me that Adam existed and Adam and I, Adam actually shot a super 16 site and super 16, right? Or was it super eight? It was uh 16, a 16, eight, 16, yeah. a 16, uh, short film that the first, that was the first thing I was ever in ever in yeah. college. Um, and I think it was probably one of the first things you ever shot in college too, right? It was, yeah, it was, yeah. In the, in the first class that we took where we were actually shooting movies. And so that right there was just like, oh, shit, yes, I remember that guy. And, like, I actually don't have to hire a complete stranger, Yeah, which was nice um, because I, I already knew implicitly going into this uh, meeting with Adam for the first time that it was someone that I had worked with in the past, even if I didn't really remember it that well. 
So it means we had to have gotten along in some capacity. Yeah. And I, I had heard about your movie before because um, I'm friends with Tom, who's the editor of the movie. And uh, I think you had brought him in early on and we're sharing the script with him. And he yeah. was mentioning it to me. Too. So that's that's something else I was talking about earlier was that like I had been sending around the script um, to people that I knew and basically asking them, what should I fucking do? <laughs> you know? Um, so if you have a script that you like, share it. Like send it out, send it out, send it around to other people who can maybe like uh, give you some guidance as to where to go next or who to go to next, um, because that's going to become really important down the road. So Adam is one of those people, though, that was really instrumental in me building the rest of my crew. So once I had someone on my team that I trusted, I was able to ask him basically uh, to bring on whoever he wanted. It had a huge effect on the snowball um, rolling. That's I don't know if that's the right metaphor, but uh, who did you bring on, Adam? Like who? Who? It was a lot of the crew. Yeah, um, I have a bunch of uh, crew members who I often work with on different projects, and uh, who I love working with, and who I trust, and who I try to work with as much as possible. It's always a challenge on short films because uh, the budget is obviously very tight. So the crew that you're trying to bring on, I mean, I'm trying to bring on professional people. So for them to be able to spend the time and take the lower rates, they have to have the time available. And sometimes you have to ask them at the right time and late. But but I, I was very, very happy to be able to get Ted Maroney as my gaffer, who's a gaffer who I often work with, who I just like love his work and love working with him and love his attitude. Um, luckily, he also... Uh, owns a lighting rental house in Brooklyn called uh, Pulsar House. Shout out to Pulsar House for sure. Hell yeah. Um, a great like boutique lighting rental house that um, uh, he you know knows all of his equipment, takes care of his equipment, and is um, willing to help you out. So that was really uh, amazing to be able to have that. Um, and then Ted brought on his friend Alec, who is like an industry grip. Yeah. That was really lucky too. Alec is like worked on like major uh, like Hollywood action movies. I can't even remember which, but he's like a very serious <laughs> um, grip, and that that was amazing. Yeah, Ted, I, I think Ted wasn't even expecting him to go on, but he was just sort of like, "Hey, man, like we're gonna be in Maryland for a few days. Like it's gonna be by this lake. It's gonna be kind of nice. Like I know it's not what you're used to doing, but you want to come out and." And he was like, yeah, sure. And he was great. Hang. He was yeah, awesome. oh yeah, he was amazing. And that's yeah. pretty much the entirety of the camera department right there. Um, well, we had, yeah, we had two ACs, which um, were not people I knew. So that was one instance of the ACs who I usually work with just weren't available, couldn't make it work. Um, so we got two additional ACs through a series of recommendations and a couple of people dropping out, <laughs> a bit of drama. But um, we ended up with some... Uh, Younger guys who um, were were learning, but were really um, like, you know, great and working really hard and and doing their thing. Yeah, they were enthusiastic, and I think enthusiasm is another big uh, like signal of people that you should be looking to hire. Because yeah. uh, if you have someone that's going to be unenthusiastic about the project and like not going to be having fun while you're down there on location, then like why even bring? Them yeah, along. definitely. Oh, yeah, and and Vanessa, yeah, Vanessa Haddad is uh, like one of my best friends and somebody who I work with and in several different capacities on movies. Um, she's actually also a director and has directed some music videos that I've shot. 
um, for Big Thief and other bands. Um, so yeah, I was really happy to be able to have her on as the art director, who's also uh, and production designer, uh, who uh, is someone that I work with a lot as a DP. The DP and the production design is like it's it's very comforting to have a good production designer yeah. as a dp i mean those yeah. are those are the three two of the three key members that i was talking about getting um yeah. before you can start really getting going is the production designer the dp and at least like one producer that you can have on your side yeah um and once you have the dp and the production designer in place it really starts to feel like a movie because you yeah. can start like storyboarding and you mm-hmm. can start uh, putting together like actual looks and like communicating these things and like having your vision grow to be just more than in your brain. It's now like been passed on to two or three people. And it's really nice to just know that they're like also thinking about how your movie is going to look. Yeah. So our final crew list um, ended up being in the production department. We had a director, one line producer, one UPM or one unit production manager a first AD who uh, is was great, Cecilia. Cecilia oh yeah, Delgado. I think Did I recommend. Bring... Yeah, I think I recommended her. She's somebody who I work with all the time as well, and is a great AD. A script supervisor, which was oh yeah, Dan. Dan, <laughs> which I you know like we also talked a lot about what the minimum possible crew would be. Yeah, uh, Adam and I, uh, and like what roles we could eliminate to save some money for budget or whatever because this is before we really even had a budget yeah um and a script supervisor was one that we thought like we could we didn't really need um on the fence on the, yeah we were on the fence about it but like especially since i was acting in the movie it turned out to be a uh, god's end it was very helpful uh we had the dp the first ac and second ac in the camera department and in the sound and electric department we had a gaffer a best boy for grip and a sound person. Uh, and then we had the production designer who also did hair, makeup, and costumes yeah. uh, and set dressing. Mm-hmm. And then we had an assistant art director who was mm-hmm. helping her. Um, and that's and then we had two PAs. Yeah, who um, were, were really helpful, actually. Who were very helpful, yeah. yeah. I mean, one was my brother and uh, one was... Thomas. Oh, yeah, Thomas. We had a camera intern, too. Oh yeah, was he? Yeah, I guess he was. Yes, camera intern. Camera intern. So yeah, like, yeah. this is the this is the thing is like, you can have your people that you hire, and then like, your people that you hire can recommend other people to hire, and then mm. they can also recommend people who like just want to come along and like be a part of something. Yeah. Um, which is something that if you're listening to this podcast and you're looking to get experience, you should be like trying to do stuff like this. You should yeah. be like trying to get in on other people's short films for like no money or no pay uh, and just to learn like what it actually feels like to be on set i think is like hugely informative definitely in school it's it's a requirement your freshman year you have to go on to um seniors films or juniors and seniors films and it was like yeah it's hugely hugely informative it's like really the only way you can learn but uh thomas who hasn't even been to film school yet um came onto the film and ended up uh, working for a bunch of people after that movie. Yeah, that's um, all. People on the, that were on the yeah, set Yeah, Cecilia too. started hiring him and uh, I think a couple other people and got some other connections through that. Yeah, it's a great way to meet people. I mean, like, <laughs> talk about networking. If you're enthusiastic on set in that role where you're not being paid, it gets people's attention. People hire you again, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you're, especially if you're good at your job. Mm-hmm. 
let's move on to this location scout that we did. Yeah. Um, because this was like a very important part of our pre-production. And I think if you're planning on shooting at a location, you need to <laughs> which be. Which you definitely are. Yeah, which I definitely <laughs> was, and you probably will be too. Unless you're uh, animating. Yeah. <laughs> you should go. Um, we went out like months before mm. for the yeah. first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we set, so we set aside a bit of the budget, um, which is another thing you should consider when you have your initial budget is like, you should set aside some for location scout, which means, mm. uh, Airbnbs, um, transportation, rental car, rip-offs. rental car ripoffs, <laughs> as I've like discussed on the show before, I think, <laughs> um, and you know, food. So we set aside that portion of the budget and, as Adam alluded to, renting a car was a terrible idea. Um, hopefully you have a car uh, or something or if a friend has a car or someone on your crew has a car that you can borrow. Uh, it's a little harder when you're in New York City to make that happen. But again, just like everything else in pre-production, you should be going into your location scout with a lot of um, thought behind it. Like you have, should have done a lot of planning. You should have been researching all your Airbnbs and going on Airbnb in general to like look for places to shoot and also Verbo and like any sort of rental, uh, house rental website that you could find that it's a really great resource because you can literally like look through the pictures and see if it fits your budget. Um, if it looks like what you're going for, then you reach out to those people and you tell them that you're coming down for a few days and uh, you ask them if you can meet up, check out their place, you're interested in making a movie and people will respond to that because people like want to be a part of a movie. A movie is a fun thing. Especially people out of the city yes. who aren't so used to it. Yes, exactly. Especially if you're like on location in the country or uh, whatever, giving like a town exposure that doesn't necessarily usually get exposure. Um, so we reached out to, geez, at least I'd say 10 people on Airbnb, uh, that we could plan on visiting while we were down there. And we also have a restaurant in our scene. So we were also looking for restaurants in the area that we were planning on on looking at, um, to get in contact with their owners and set aside times that we could come and meet with them. Uh, so basically our location scout was to go down and get a feel for the area to look at prospective houses that we could shoot in for our house, uh, to look at diners. And the lake. And the lake, yes. So what ended up happening was we found a house. Actually, the house that we ended up staying at uh, was the one that we chose um, because the hosts were awesome. Uh, It had everything we needed. It had access to a lake in the background. Basically, like when you're thinking about locations, it's also important to think about how you can consolidate locations. Yep. Um, and having a place that had access to water, that had a boat, <laughs> and that was like just a pretty beautiful place in general, uh, it was a no-brainer, really. Yeah. Um, it just made complete sense. But we wouldn't have gotten there if we hadn't had taken the time to do the research to find this place. Mm-hmm. And then we would have been fucked if we didn't have yeah. a boat, if we yeah. didn't have access to water. Mm-hmm. So you got to take into consideration these things before you go down, look at what your script needs and identify the things that are really important for your locations to have. We also needed a diner. Uh, I had a very specific idea for what the diner, you, you, you should be open to changes. That's the other thing because like I had a very specific idea for what I wanted this diner to look like uh, from like Twin Peaks and whatever. And then we get down there and uh, the diner that we, we saw a couple diners 
one of them was just so strange <laughs> and so out in the middle of nowhere uh, and s- felt so much like it should be in the project, even though it wasn't what I had in mind, that it was the production design was already there for us too. Like there was all this weird shit on the walls that we like could definitely use. Um, That again, it was like, okay, well this is something that I think we have to go with. Um, Even though it didn't fit our original plan. So shout out to Courtney's restaurant. Amazing food too, fed us. Yep. And that's the other thing is like when you're looking at restaurants, you have to be taking into consideration that these are businesses um, that you know, you'll be cutting into their hours of making money. Um, so if you find a restaurant that doesn't have very many patrons, they'll be more likely to uh, take a fee and let you use their place uninterrupted. And what we ended up doing for Courtney's was this was a restaurant that was owned by a mom and pop, like it's literally a mom and pop restaurant. And their daughter. And yeah. their daughter. The mom cooks the food, the dad catches the fish, and the daughter serves the food yeah, and runs the restaurant and runs the restaurant and that's it um so what they ended up doing for us is that you know i came to them with a number they came back at me with a higher number i came back at them with a lower number <laughs> and the uh addition that they also needed to feed us and for the two days that we were shooting in their restaurant and they accepted that again like while you're while you're producing like think about all these ways that you can cut corners to keep your budget intact so we came back and we had a better idea for what the short was going to feel like, what we were going to be shooting. You had you had Artemis with you too, right? You were yeah. using Artemis, mm-hmm. which is a app um, that you can get on your phone that replicates different cameras and lens styles. Yeah, you can uh, input different cameras and different lens sets. And uh, so you can actually look at your locations and see uh, what lenses you would need to pick to get what kind of coverage and just get a better idea of what it might actually look like in the space. I, I often find that um, location scouting is good to do as early as possible. And it's another thing that I really appreciate coming in on a project. Um, when people do too much conceptualizing before they location scout, um, I find it can also often be frustrating. Like if people are doing uh, shot lists that are more than like general, this is the thing I want in the frame. Um, it's like you said with the diner, you're always imagining a space when you're writing. You're always imagining a space when you're shot listing. And if it's not the space that you're actually going to be in, you often have to start over after that. Oh, absolutely. And so um, I, I like to be able to get a location set as soon as possible because it really drives so much of conceptualizing like, okay, like, what should the shot actually be in this space? Like given this space and given these objects and given this lighting and where the windows are and mm-hmm. this and that, um, hugely, hugely helpful in planning everything else. And the other thing that it does is it forces you to like set a time where you're actually going to make your movie. Yeah. Right. So it's like when you're talking to these people and you want to lock down a location, you got to like give them a date. Yeah. <laughs> and then once that date is set, you can't really go back, um, which is very helpful. Uh, to give yourself a deadline. Yeah. So yeah, now let's talk about the uh, cameras and lenses that we actually decided to go with after having been down there and getting a better idea for what the spaces will look like. I, I think maybe the space like inspired the look a little bit. Um, I don't think what we brought in was necessarily that practical. No. Um, we, I mean, we were shooting at some typed spaces, but we didn't like bring in like the smallest <laughs> camera or anything like that. Or the smallest um, lenses. Yeah. Um, but... But it was definitely helpful in driving the look, yeah. Right. So when we say that we didn't bring in the smallest camera or the smallest lenses, 
we ended up using these giant Lomo like vintage anamorphics. I think they're the same pair that like Dogtooth was shot on. Yeah, not not like I don't think the literal set and that there is a right. difference between sets, but yeah, this the same types of lenses. So uh, the build of this camera, and we used an Alexa Classic, right? It was an Alexa Classic, yeah, with the XR module. XR, XR. Yeah. Um, and it was huge. Like, the build was huge. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, during production ended up being fine, but, like... Wow. <laughs> yeah. Ended up being okay. Fine for you, I guess. Fine for me. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, it was it was tough with like our ACs, and it also took a lot of time um, to build yeah. up and and move re- around, move around, yeah. and like rebuild. So something that you should be taking into consideration when uh, making a camera choice is like you know how much time you'll actually be having in between each shot to make these changes. Who you'll have on the crew to assist the DP uh, <laughs> in order to make these changes. And, um, yeah, I, do you want to speak anything to that? Yeah, I mean, uh, a, a lot of it comes down to budget and what you're willing to push um, given the budget restraints. Like, you know, if we had an unlimited budget, an Alexa Mini probably would have been great for this movie. Well, an Alexa 4.3 maybe would have been best for the anamorphic, but a Mini would have been great. It would have been um, good to uh, fit in our tight spaces, easier to move around with limited crew, but but the Mini's a hot item right now. It's a new item, and, and you can't get the kind of deal on it that you can get on the um, classic Alexas. And Ari, um, Ari gave us an amazing deal on the camera and the lenses, so it's it's at that point, it's like, you're getting this deal. It's like, you know, just, yeah. just go with it and figure it out, so, which was totally fine. I mean, I was very, very happy to be able to shoot on that camera. Yeah, and, like, that's another thing that we should talk about is, like, how we uh, ended up presenting this project to rental houses to try and get these deals. Um, I reached out to a a lot of different rental houses around New York City um, to try and get a deal on uh, an Alexa with, um, you know, some anamorphic lenses and uh, filters and Mm -hmm. the package, basically, Mm -hmm. like monitors. um, Well, one monitor, two monitors? couple monitors yeah um because that's what like we were going for you don't need to do that on a short film like you can shoot a short film on a mirrorless camera um if you wanted to and you could also rent a mirrorless camera but the truth is like if you did want to shoot on an alexa with all this stuff it it ended up costing about two thousand dollars for the entire package that we got for a five-day shoot um, which was very reasonable within our budget. Amazing deal. Yeah. Um, and I found that a lot of the other rental houses were willing to help us out too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that often the gear portion of the budget gets a little bit conflated. Uh, most of your money is gonna should be ending up going to your crew and locations and housing and production design. And I don't think you need to worry necessarily too much about how much that gear is going to cost you um, as long as you do the research and the due diligence of like reaching out and trying to find the best deal. You can find pretty good deals. Um, we used RE Rental and like that was amazing. <laughs> yeah. RE is, RE is one of uh, the best ones to reach out to, I think, because they, act, I mean, they invented the gear, so they yeah. have plenty of it and, and it's it's a direct way um, it's just somebody to work with directly who like 
yeah, has plenty of it and, and can give you a deal on it. It's definitely worth asking. And yeah. if you're willing to be flexible with like, uh, is it going to be an older camera? You know, is it not like maybe it's an older tripod that happens to be lying around? We shot with, um, I believe it's just three focal lengths, which um, is a stretch. But if you're willing to uh, try to push that, that's something they're often able to do. Just hand you a few lenses. So you and your DP obviously need to collaborate on what the look is going to be like. You need to talk about uh, how much money you have, that what you can get for that kind of money. And then you need to come to the rental house with a suggested package. And then they'll send you back a quote. Um, and hopefully that quote will be reasonable. Generally, it is. Um, one thing about producing that I definitely learned throughout this entire thing is that you cannot be afraid to ask for things. <laughs> um, yeah, that's true. That's that's the job of the producer is you need to have no shame um, in terms of asking, and that's something that gets a lot easier once you start doing it, much like making a short film, I guess. Um, that's the whole industry, I think. I mean, in terms of my crew and the gear, I'm, I'm always asking for favors too. Yeah, you sort of have to be ready to do that. So then another favor that we did ask for that I wanted to touch on um, is in order to get this gear, you need insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've never made a movie before and you don't have a production company, uh, that can be tricky um, because it's expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, to, I guess, find, uh, what, what would, if we didn't have the person that we had, what would we have had to do in terms of insurance? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are different production companies that can rent out their insurance. There are also like third party groups that you can rent it from that I don't know the names of names of, but, uh, they get expensive. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it would be hard. Yeah. So we had a guy named William Hughes Thompson, help us out because he has a production company Mm -hmm. um, which has insurance and he basically just let us use his insurance. We paid him a fee that was much more reasonable than anything we would have got anywhere else. Um, And then it was very easy. His company becomes like a producer on the project. Yes. So that's the thing. So again, you need to be looking at everyone (laughs) in your, uh, in your area, I guess, like in your social sphere um, which becomes a lot easier if you did go to film school, but you can do if you just hire someone who went to film school. <laughs> or knows people through or, the industry or whatever. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So then I guess we'll wrap up here um, by actually like talking a little bit about the uh, strategies that we use to like communicate with each other before we went down, like storyboarding and shot listing, um, what do you like to do actually before you get on set? Like, how do you feel, when do you feel most comfortable as a DP entering a set? What kind of work do you do? Yeah. Um, a hundred percent, the location scout is the most important thing to me. If I haven't like actually been in a space and like felt the space and walked around and, uh, if you're utilizing natural light at all, seeing what the sun does, where the windows are, um, what the space is like that's definitely the most important thing um shot listing is hugely important as well although it does change on set and you have to be open to that possibility um 
some some people like shot listing, writing it out. Some people like storyboarding. I'm sort of open to either. So, sometimes I find shot listing actually makes more sense because it's a little bit more abstract and it leaves you a little bit of room of what's going to happen on set. But some people find it's helpful to draw it out in a storyboard just to like really visualize it. And I think you know both are great depending on depending on the director. Yeah, for me, uh, I both storyboarded and shot listed because yeah. I'd never done anything before and I think like in terms of my own confidence level on going in and like directing this thing it was really important that I knew exactly what each scene called for mm-hmm. um, and also was able to communicate with Adam uh, in a way that wasn't like based off of film vocabulary I guess yeah it was more just like this is what I look at my stick people yeah <laughs> <You're> great <laughs> you drawings know? look at my fantastic drawings um and then like that evolved too like we started with storyboards and then like I was able to take those storyboards and sort of like script line throughout my script and like use which is basically like you take a bunch of colored pencils um, you label your shots in your storyboard and then you like bring down the colored pencil over your script to signify which portion of the scene is being shot uh, from which angle basically. And that was hugely helpful for me just in knowing that I'd always have that to turn back to on set um, and, you know, not wasting any time. <laughs> Definitely. Storyboarding is a little funny when, uh, you're not like very good at drawing because the shot the pictures were mostly great but occasionally I'd get one would be like oh actually this perspective is impossible (laughs) like you're seeing like way too much of this room or like there's no way to do this and then I'd be like no it's like this (laughs) yeah yeah and then you'd be like oh yeah okay that drawing looks nothing (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) um so yeah I guess so I didn't talk much about this but I at one point I had a co-director on board and it was because I was looking for someone who like could maybe get me out of my social sphere a bit and who had more connections that could bring people on. Um, but then things with her didn't end up working out and, uh, I had, we had to push, we had to push the schedule. Um, there was a lot of like, we did this location scout in July and, uh, you know, people were doing their summer thing but Adam really stepped in and like once I had Adam, I think like I became a lot, felt a lot more confident in my own abilities to direct. So I, we mutually parted, uh, this co-director and I, and a few weeks after that, uh, I also had to let go of my producer because she was, um, not performing her duties as a producer, uh, which is unfortunate. But basically, I'm now like a quarter of the way or more into pre-production and I'm starting over again in a way. Uh, So I'll leave you with that. I'll leave you with that cliffhanger of how how does how does John rekindle the fire? Essentially, Um, I had to had to scramble around for a bit. I had a few anxiety attacks. I watched a lot of cheers. But you'll hear more about the next phase of production, including our budget, um, our Kickstarter campaign, uh, and then actually going into production on the next episode. Thank you, Adam, for coming and joining us. Thanks for having me. This was great. Thank you guys for listening. I hope it wasn't too much of my voice. Uh, And we'll be back next week with part two. See ya.